Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor and I spoke with Rebecca Mead, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker. Rebecca spoke about her entry into journalism uh, as a fact-checker at New York magazine. She then talked about how she became a staff writer at The New Yorker, and she talked us through the process and craft of writing long-form. It was a really fascinating interview, a look behind the curtain at one of the most revered journalistic institutions in the world, and we really hope you enjoy it. So, Rebecca, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Um, I thought we could start by talking a bit about where you grew up and your idea of kind of getting away from there, which seems <laughs> to have been a, a notion in, in some of your work. Where, where, where well, did it all, all start? All my work, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah I grew up uh, in the town of Weymouth. Um, in Dorset? In Dorset, yeah. A delightful seaside resort um, that I was dying to leave from about the age of... God, I don't know, at least 15 onwards, but maybe maybe earlier. I was born in London, and my family moved from London to the coast when I was three, and I spent my whole childhood feeling that I had been taken away from the place I was supposed to be and, uh, you know, put into this alien environment. Mm. I mean, it was lovely. It's a great place. To, it's a lovely place to be a child, but there was no culture there was no there were no museums there were no there was barely a bookstore there was a library which we used a lot um but there wasn't a cinema for much of my childhood and uh there wasn't a theater except for the local pavilion where they put on the christmas panto um so i i had an idea that there was a a sort of world of culture elsewhere that um i was missing out on I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I knew I wanted to have a bit of it. So were you writing in your spare time as a form of escape? At that yeah, stage? I was. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a child, I mean, as a little, ch- as a small child, I wrote stories and, and th- that sort of thing. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I suppose I did write. I, I did write. I mean, not in any, you know, not in any serious way. But yes, I wrote. When, do you, when does your first kind of memorable piece of writing go back to that's such a good question. Um, I, I can tell you about my first published piece of writing, which was in the... When I was a child, the Observer magazine, uh, the, the magazine that was of the Observer newspaper, had a section, the back pages of the magazine were for kids. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a thing that they did called the Young Reporters Club. And you could join the Young Reporters Club... And they would send you a little badge, uh, like a little press pass that said Young Reporters Club. And there were these assignments where you would be, you know, the magazine would tell you to, um, you know, go interview this kind of person or that kind of person. And and the very first one of those I did um, was an, a profile of my teacher in the final year of primary school. So I was 11 and Mr. Arnold, and I wrote a piece about him, and it was published, and I got paid £10 for it. <laughs> That's uh, it a was a, idea. It was a Coots Bank, is that how you pronounce it? Mm. Check? Yeah. Mm. Um, I cashed it, you know, I, mean, <laughs> I wasn't going to keep it forever, but um, yeah, uh, that, was, that, was my first, that was my first taste of, um, you know, the, the minor art of 
writing words on deadline Was for that money. because your parents had encouraged you to do it? Were you interested in... No, in I think I was interested. I'm sure they encouraged me, yeah. but I think I was interested on my, on my own, yeah. And how did you decide you know, that you wanted to pursue journalism professionally? When did that come about? You, well, did, I did, you did English at university. Yeah, I, 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 went to, I went to university and did English and uh, wrote a bit for magazines while I was there. Um, not for, tons. For kind of grown-up magazines or for student magazines? No, for student magazines, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Which ones? Well, I wrote for ISIS. I was at Oxford. I wrote for ISIS. Um, and that was kind of it. I think I, I also did, I felt I got myself an internship at the, at the, whatever the local Oxford newspaper was and wrote some book reviews for them. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I liked doing that. And um, I got to the end of, you know, the start of my final year college and everybody was you know applying for the same small handful of jobs that I'm sure everybody still applies for the Times did an entry scheme and the BBC had an entrance scheme and I had this idea that if I went to America if I went to New to to New York and studied journalism I would then be able to come back to England a year later with a sparkling qualification that would make me stand out from everybody else I knew who was all applying for the same four positions, four trainee positions. Um, so that's what I did. But I, I think it was, you know, while I was at, while I was at university, um, I discovered how much fun it was to, mm. to do it, and it seemed like the obvious thing to do. I think, I'd, I think you know, as a child, I'd, I'd been encouraged to write and had always, and it had never seemed like an impossible thing to be a writer, although I didn't know any writers, I just didn't know any journalists. That wasn't the kind of milieu that I grew up in. But um, it seemed like, a, like, it was a thing that maybe I could do. What and journalists were you reading at that time? Well, I was I was reading, um, you know, the the Observer of the nineteen eighties. So um, I'm trying to remember, but you know, there were bit like columnists like Catherine Whitehorn. Is that her name? I mean, like people that were. Uh, no, like long, long before your mm. time. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I was, just, I was reading the papers. I was reading The Guardian. That was what we had at home. Um, and, uh, you know, that was what I thought journalism was. I didn't... I, I went to New York not because I was in love with American magazines or anything like that. I'd never read any American magazines. Um, I went because um, I thought it sounded cool. <laughs> And we, we, always try and, we always try and talk with everyone about money and the financial side of things in the podcast. How were you able to, to fund the American side? I'm presumably it wasn't as expensive as it is today to do an American master's. But. No, uh, but, it was, uh, but I was given a full scholarship okay. at, by NYU. Okay. Um, I was a teaching assistant, and I paid for so I so that paid for everything. And I borrowed from my mum and dad at considerable cost to them because they were not wealthy people. Um, I borrowed three thousand pounds from them to fund my, you know, just life for a period of that period of time in the states, and I paid it back when I was in my mid twenties. Okay, and what were you studying at NYU? Journalism. Journalism. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I, I was. I went and did the um, graduate journalism program at NYU that I thought was only going to be a year. I was a real shock to arrive in New York and discover it was a year and a half. Okay. Um, but that's what happened to me. And what was your experience of journalism education? It's obviously an area that people mm. get, get sort of different yeah. ratings and reviews. You know, for me, it was an amazing place to get to a really amazing place. It was a, it was a way of getting to New York. And 
um, and a safe environment in which to do that. I can't see any way I could have had the life and the career that I've had had I not gone to journalism school, but it wasn't because of anything I learned at journalism school. I mean, it wasn't anything I learned in a class. Um, I'm sure there are amazing uh, journalism teachers who inspire their students and give them, you know, great ideas about how to write pieces better. But I, uh, I, uh, you know, and I had some very, you know, wonderful people, but um, everything I learned, I learned on the job. And when did you first become aware of The New Yorker, where, of course, you, you are working for now? I... Um, I, th I was trying to think about this, and I think I was... Well, no, I first became aware of The New Yorker when I was at university, because my room, my, my next-door neighbour... At Oxford. At Oxford, or, at Oxford, yeah. My next-door neighbour at Oxford, um, who had grown up in a much more sophisticated environment than me and came from London and gone to private school and uh, had this kind of, to me, very kind of glamorous, um, sophisticated uh, upbringing... Part of her sophistication was that she had covered all of her walls with covers of The New Yorker that her mother, who I think is part American, had um, collected and saved. Mm. So she had. So I was first introduced to The New Yorker in the form of wallpaper <laughs> and only later started to read it. And I was assigned it to read as... Um, I, think I, I think I started reading it because one of the journalism classes that I took at NYU required me to read the New York Times every day and the New Yorker every week and I think that's how I was first exposed to it and I didn't really understand it when I first started reading it uh, you know the, the, there was a kind of I mean this is pre this is like um, it's not uh, I'm trying to think who the editor would have been I mean it's way way pre-Tina Brown it's like the iteration before Tina Brown so um, it was you know these very long you know, three-part articles about the Great Plains, the famously that I mean, which Ian Fraser turned into an incredible book. But it's the grain thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, and I, at least I think I think mm. that's it. we're talking about the same thing. And yeah. I, and um, and I couldn't get my head around how you could even get into reading that kind of thing, really. And I couldn't. Um, it was so alien, so alien, and so so different from anything that was I was used to reading in Britain, where the papers were, you know, the journalism in Britain was so much more kind of rascalish and mm. like slapdash a little bit, and a little loose on facts and high on style, and um, and uh, it was a very very different kind of approach. Um, the American kind of uh, seriousness, I suppose. Um, I, and I couldn't understand the cartoons. I didn't know that why they were funny. <laughs> I, now I do. Um, but I couldn't... Yeah, it was quite hard. And the, th the article that really, I think... Um, the first thing I read in The New Yorker that uh, kind of blew my mind was um, Janet Malcolm's The Journalist and the Murderer, which mm. you know now every journalism student reads and everybody who's at all interested in journalism must read. But it was published... Around about that time, I think it was ninety three. No, earlier than that, eighty nine, something. Like that. I, I mean, I've, I've kind of lost the date, but it was around the time that I was first arriving in New York, and um, and that made a huge impression on me as a as a kind of um, tour de force of reporting and style and voice and everything else. And what was your immediate post NYU progression? Because you worked elsewhere. Yeah, New yeah, yeah. I, well, while I was at NYU, um, 
I got myself a an internship, a paid internship, um, at uh, New York Magazine, and I started to go there, you know, several days a week, and was helping out and doing all kinds of things. And then, when it came to the end of my course, um, a job came open in the fact checking department at. New York Magazine and I was offered it but it was like weeks it was like maybe six weeks I was planning to move back to England and this job came up and I took it and that was that and I what were the like the visa specifics at that time did you have like a grace period after yeah there was a there was a I was on a student visa and I think you I think at that time you had 18 months maybe of um work experience time that you could do and so I did that and um, and if I'm remembering correctly, I could be, you know, it's all a little foggy, but um, I think after that I got the first stage of a work visa. But okay. feels like working in a fact-checking department is the perfect training ground for then going into the, the <laughs> New York. <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, this was... This was long before the internet, and we had Lexus. We had a Lexus Nexus machine, but it was really expensive to use, and so you could only like go and look something up for thirty seconds, and then get off it again. And so most of the checking that you had to do, none of you know, I mean, you had to call people, people up and ask them things. And so often you'd be calling the sources and, mm. of the story, and you know, re-reporting. Which they still do the story. The they still do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was going to say, could you maybe explain to a British audience what a fact checker is? You mean they, they don't know? <laughs> um, yeah, a fact checker is the is the you know poor young person who gets given the manuscript of the um, celebrated uh, well-known writer and has to comb it comb through it to you know and you go sort of go through it with a highlighter pen highlighting all the facts names uh, dates but also just you know whether it really was a cream color sweater she was wearing not a brown one and then you have to call the person who's named you're smiling because it sounds no, so I'm, No, I'm laughing uh, because it's reminding me of the Daniel Radcliffe New Yorker piece. Oh, yeah, 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 which where is it's brilliant. Yeah. Absurd because he ended up having to almost fact check himself. Own, yeah, 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 that was great. Um, yeah, so you have to, you have to, you know, call the person up and say, you know, it's, was, is it true to say that you were, uh, you know, wearing this or doing that? And, and you'd have to sort of paraphrase the quotes back to them so you would never read the quotes back, but you'd, you know, paraphrase them. And um, and then for things that were not verifiable, you'd, and you'd sort of have to, you know, double source things. So the writer might have said that such and such a thing happened on a date, but you can never just take the writer's or the source's word for it. You have to cross-reference and make sure that it's accurate. So you'd, we used to spend a lot of time calling the, the information desk of the Brooklyn Public Library, who were like the Internet of the pre-Internet era. <laughs> and you just call up these people, and they knew the answers to everything. So... Um, yeah. Did you ever find it dull or it was much too stressful to be dull. It was a re- it's a really really stressful job if you take it seriously and if you have at all any kind of OCD uh tendencies which I definitely do and did. Um you know, it's such a responsibility mm. because it's you it's you're the person between you know the reader and the and the writer and if you mess it up it's your fault. But if you don't mess it up, if you get it right, the writer gets all the glory. So it's a really, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a great way to learn how to be a reporter because you learn, you see how a story gets put together and what you need to have and who you need to have talked to. And you learn how to, you know, I learned, uh, you know, which departments of the government did what and all kinds of 
all kinds of things. It was that was my education really was in the photo checking department. I feel like it's much more glamorous in the states than it is over here. It doesn't exist in Britain. No, but subs. It's not the same. No. It's not the same. Oh no, it's nowhere no. close. No, no. It's completely no. As in we you were... don't ring anyone or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, no, no, no. We, I mean, we there were there were five of us in a in a in a little pen mm. like half the size of this room, and we and we and you'd work really long hours, and you'd have to be there, you know, until late at night. And um, I mean, they like re-interview people and, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're totally re-interviewing people. It was a you know, it was a good it was a way to learn. Things. And how did you kind of break into writing your own stuff? Well, while at New York Magazine, I started to write pieces for... This is in the 90s, was it? This is, is, yeah, I started working there... Oh, God, it's all so long ago and so foggy, but I think I started working there as as an intern in 1989 and 1990, 91. I guess I was working there as a checker and started at that time to write short pieces for the front of the book um and uh and I did I I I wrote a lot of stuff that was like about nightlife in New York because it I could do that after hours so I would go out and write you know go to nightclubs and stupid stuff like that um was this when was it that spy did the like pro-am New York nightlife decathlon thing I like do you know that I don't know it's this extraordinary piece where like pitted Anthony Hayden guest against like Carl Bernstein in a sort of challenge that neither of them knew they were taking part in and they like sent some kind of like young reporter out to take them on the town and see who would last longer oh, I mean, it's, that's got, funny. Yeah, it's, it's amazing but it's like pretty... I was I love it could have been then I don't remember the article I mean I I loved and revered spy magazine yeah. um which was maybe not quite in its heyday but almost in its heyday Set up by at Graydon that point. Carter, like, and before. Kurt Anderson yeah um who was who's was, has been a very important person in my career because Kurt Anderson later edited New York Magazine. Right. But, um, and then it was really, it's really Kurt Anderson who got me my job at The New Yorker, so I owe him everything. Um, but I was always too fr- afraid to, to, I mean, the spy seemed like so cool and I was, I never like could have like apply for a job or anything like that because I was too scared. Also, I guess I was in a, I was in a visa situation where I couldn't just apply for a job. So I was kind yeah. of stuck where I was. Um, and, and I suppose, again, for conscious for a British audience, can yeah. you explain kind of where New York magazine fitted in the media ecosystem? Because it came out of the old, like, Herald Tribune. Yeah, yeah. Tom Wolfe wrote for. And yeah, tw- it's Tom Wolfe. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was sort of a, 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 a place in which the so-called new journalism, yeah. uh, you know, rose and appeared. And it, and it was really uh, an important magazine in the world of magazines in the 70s and you know, probably into the 80s. By the time I was there... In the late eighties and early nineties, it was it was covering a very particular kind slice of kind of Upper East Side, Upper West Side, kind of affluent, um, not high society by any means, but it was a very particular kind of very white um, world, uh, kind of culture, arts, politics, um, but not um, sort of downtown like. The Village Voice was, and 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 quite, you know, distinctive in 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 that in that way. Um, and uh, you know, that was very much the kind of New York. That was my first New York. It took me a while to realize that there were other New Yorks to get to know, get to know because yeah. I was very you know, very much in that one. Um, but why? But you asked when I started writing. So I started writing for New York Magazine, and then at the same time, I I um, I would. 
I, I sort of started freelancing for British newspapers and met some British journalists sort of at work in America and started sort of just writing stuff for, for UK papers and really anybody who would have me and um, I would get to work very early and, you know, stay very late and, you know, work really, really hard. It was fun. And from breaking, then how did it continue? From, were you then writing features for New York? No, I had to leave. Um, I, I, so I was at New York Magazine as a as a checker, and then I I did actually move back to London for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1992, I was offered a job through somebody I'd met in New York at the Sunday Times of London style section, okay. and I came back and wrote uh, for for that. Um, extremely unhappily, um, I wasn't ready to leave New York at all, but it was kind of the, a, a great job on paper. It was a sort of miserable, excruciating job in practice. But um, why was it miserable? Oh, it was just there. Were, it just was a. You were constantly trying to f- trying to read what your editor wanted without being able to ask what he wanted or him being able to tell you what he wanted. And there was a lot of politics, and it was. I didn't really know what I was, I was supposed to be writing about a sort of like society column for for London and I didn't know who anybody was. I mean I didn't know who any of the British celebrities were and the most important thing I didn't know was who any of the um sort of minor and even major aristocrats were and that seemed to be such an important part of the social world. Um were you meant to be kind of going out and I was going to parties and, and sort of writing you know party reports mm. but I ended up I mean, it was just grim. I I didn't last a year. I, I I moved. I was I moved back to New York. I was I was offered the job that um, I was offered a job as a writer back at New York Magazine. So having made this tremendous, you know, like effort and left New York, yeah. I went back about a year later. It was Camilla Long once gave me advice. She said writing party pages is the best journalistic experience you'll have when you're younger because you meet so many people <laughs> and so many journalists, and it's the best kind of career jump you'll get doing party pages yeah I'm not sure I'd necessarily agree with that <laughs> um, I mean I've done I've done a lot of, I've written about a lot you know I mean talk of the town a lot of that was party you know some of that is party mm. reporting too but so um, how did you escape yeah. from the Sunday Times yeah. well I was offered a job back in New York okay. I, I I found my way back uh, to to New York magazine again okay. but this time as a staff writer or contributing editor or whatever it was okay. called then so then I went back there and I was writing features and writing um, you know, event, eventually, but I mean, in a relatively short space of time, cover stories and all that kind of thing. And how many jobs were you applying for? Because everyone just sees the finished end, but uh, were you applying for tons and not getting anywhere? Or? Jobs? Yeah. No, because the other thing is that I had this visa situation right. where the only job I could go back to in New York was at New York Magazine. I couldn't actually be like on the open job market. So I never, I've really never applied. For a job. Gosh, you're so lucky. And the, 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 the <laughs> I hope I never the, have to. Jesus, uh, you know, but we'll see. The, but I don't. I mean, I, I don't really think I have applied for a job. Was being a staff writer was that? Were you on a contract or were you genuinely at the on con- staff? At, uh, it, at, New, at New York Magazine, I was, I think, genuinely on staff. Yeah. yeah. And can you again try it for someone who is British but has worked in this American milieu? Kind of, how, how would you? summarise American magazine journalism compared to 
to what's producing the British press? Well, I think a lot of the British press these days has taken a lot of cues from American journalism. There's a lot more in the British press now than there used to be that's like American journalism. Yeah. The sort of investment that's happened in places like The Guardian in long form um, is all on the American model, which wasn't really the case. There wasn't really that sort of stuff um, when I was coming up. I mean, it, there was, you know, American journalism is... Uh, or the kind of work that I was doing was like, you know, you'd have to write a, um, the kind of work I still do. You write a profile of somebody, a feature of somebody, and you know it takes. You know, New York Magazine it used to be it used to be a matter of weeks. Now it can be a matter of months, and talk to dozens of people, and uh, you know interview the person that you're writing about multiple times, and try to get you know the historical background or the you know the intellectual context and the, try to tell a whole very deep very rich story and in britain you know the interviews that there were were um you know clearly somebody would just go and have lunch with their the person they were interviewing and there were people who were genius at doing that and getting a lot out of a, an an encounter but often the just the uh, the article that you read was as much about the encounter and it was the voice of the reporter was important. I mean, somebody like Lynn Barber, who's mm. fantastic, um, but that was the sort of, that was the pinnacle of Hopefully sort of, a, of, so. of what could be done this side of the Atlantic in yeah. um, back in the 90s. And how was it being British in that New York Milo? Were you accepted or was it, were you kind of viewed with a suspicion? Uh, um I don't know, but I mean, I'm, I don't. I could have been viewed with suspicion. I don't know, but um, I mean, I I have to say, I I it, it never it never seemed to me to be anything other than a benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you've written that you could kind of say anything, and people would think everything you said sounds clever. <laughs> and if it was clever, <laughs> you were doing doubly well. Um, no, it was like, I mean, I've, I've written this, but it was like going, when I first got there and just like discovering, oh, this is what it's like to be beautiful. Everybody mm. just likes you and they can't help it. And they just, you know, want to do things for you and you haven't done anything to deserve it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to, you know, be, be um, uh, you know, overstate it. But, uh, yeah, the British accent does not hurt in, um, in New York journalistic circles at least it didn't in you know in those years we're talking mm. about the 1990s um yeah you wrote about the return of the natives and the beautiful feeling beautiful with the way oh, you speak uh and with your accent yeah, yeah 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 i mean you know i i mean it's just my mm. voice but um but it it uh it, yeah it didn't hurt and how- oh, but the other thing though it should be said about being british it's not just having the accent mm. that you know, a lot of Americans think it's a really nice one. Um, you know, the education system had prepared me to, you know, the British education that I'd had was like, you wrote a lot of essays, you did a lot of writing, and more so than um, my American peers, I think. Um, and you also do a lot of, you know, I'd studied English literature at Oxford University, I'd read a lot of books. Did you feel the British were more literary in terms of their... I, th- I mean, I think that not everybody is obviously, and I don't want to make a vast characterization about one country versus another, but personally, speaking personally, my grounding in literature and the amount that I'd read and the amount that I'd written, I think served me well going into a world where 
having to write a lot and knowing a lot of words was a helpful thing. And what, what was your route to the New Yorker? To the that? New Yorker? Mm. Um, so you went to 97? I went there in 97, yes, and it really was because of Kurt Anderson, who was this founding editor, along with Graydon Carter, of Spy Magazine, and he had become the editor of New York Magazine while I was there, and he was amazing, and he gave me such freedom and such interesting assignments and such incredible encouragement. He was a really, really wonderful person to work for, uh, and then he was fired and um, for overstepping some boundary of um, that the publisher didn't like. He was fired for good reasons, not bad ones. Um, and uh, uh, and he went to the New Yorker, or started writing for the New Yorker, and um, and it was through him that I uh, I learned that they were looking for uh, a writer to to be like a talk of the town writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there had been in the past. Was was Tina still running it? She was. She, she I, we overlapped for about nine months, okay. um, and uh, so yeah, they were looking for someone to be strictly a, a talk writer. And uh, Kurt's former colleague Susan Morrison was running that section, and she interviewed me, and I got the job. What was the interview like? Do you remember? Yeah, she was very pregnant, and um, and she was sort of told me that she'd be going on leave uh, kind of immediately. That I, you know that I or whoever it was took the job uh, would be starting and uh, and that was indeed the case um, but that's mostly what I remember about it I, 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 we had lunch that's what I remember Has the interview process in the New Yorker changed at all over the years? I have no idea because I haven't had to re-interview for yeah. my job thank goodness so, I'm, And, I'm, it, and again to, to translate from what you may be familiar what, yeah. how would you place you know, the New Yorker as a thing, as a magazine in American culture, in the broader literary world? For say, you're explaining to your 19-year-old self who'd never read it. Yeah. Um, well, it's, I forget exactly how many years old, 95, getting up yeah, there, so nearly 100 years old. Um, and it's really, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the best magazine there is. Uh, it's, you know, rigorously reported, brilliantly edited, fact-checked, as we discussed, um, you know, ranges widely, sort of uh, culture, arts, politics, all of those things, and um, and is, uh, is, is put together with a real, um, uh, I mean, the, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it, 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 I, I mean, I can't, listen, I'm losing, I can't even express how, how, you know imp- how significant or how um, how great it is. It, it's and uh, what were the, the changes? Lo- that you, that Tina Brown losing, had. stumbling <laughs> for words. I just love where I work. That what had, what were the changes that Tina Brown had kind of wrought in the? Yeah, so she, so in the when she took it over, um, she, I mean, it it had had a reputation prior to her coming of being you know a little dull, you know, three part pieces on corn that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and she, um, as they say, sexed it up, and um, there was a lot. I think that there was a lot more responsiveness to the news mm-hmm. under her. There was a lot more responsiveness to Hollywood and entertainment and those things that she was interested about. It was very buzzy, and um, and it got a lot of attention. Uh, when she left, which was, as I say, you know, only a few months after I arrived, um, 
David Remnick became the editor, who had previously been a writer. Um, and, um, you know, and thank goodness is still there. Uh, he's an amazing person. He's an incredible editor and a, a phenomenal human being. And Oh, I was just going to say in that nine months that you overlapped with, with yeah. Tina, did you, how much did you interact? <laughs> with um, we, we not not tons, but I did ride up with her once in the elevator on oh. the way to um, beginning work in the morning. And she looked at me with her big, I think, blue eyes and uh, I'm, sh I'm sure didn't know who I was. Um, and um, we had a sort of, you know, rather uncomfortable little chat. And that was that um uh, and I remember sort of more her awkwardness than my own because mm. you know she was after all the the boss I read her I'm sure you both read her memoir re her her diaries recently and I uh, I loved them so much and I wanted to I didn't but I should have done it, it was like write her a note to say just to say how much I I appreciated reading not just you know the sort of like gossipy work stuff which was all you know very delicious to me who had lived uh, you know very very peripherally mm. in the world that she was the center of mm. um but also just reading about her insecurities and her anxieties and how you know worried she was about things and how insecure she felt about things and I, it was great relief to me to discover that she had ever felt those ways because she'd projected such a you know, sort of mm. power and, and confidence and all those things. And um, and I'm, you know, like phenomenally insecure and anxious all of the time about my work. So um, it made me feel, uh, you know, I thought, oh, Tina. So did you write her the note? I didn't write her the note, but oh, I'm writing it. I'm saying it now. <laughs> you know. If only she'd listen yeah. to this <laughs> And what, what are the kind of mechanics of, of how the magazine works in terms of how many staff writers are there and what is their expected production and, and things like that. How many people are involved in the, in the production? I don't know. This is all... I'm just one of the writers, so I don't have to know any of those things. And I honestly don't know how many staff writers there are. And, okay. and I don't... Is that a closely guarded secret? No. I just... Okay. You know, there's no, there's no masthead, mm -hmm. so you can't count them. And um, there's no way of reckoning it. I really don't... I don't know. I've never tried to count. There are lots. Um, yeah. And there are no but some of them have like university jobs and yeah. So there well, are there right? are people. Who, uh, yeah, staff writer means a different thing yeah. to in lots of. I mean, there are people who are called a staff writer who may not have written a piece for years. Mm. And are they being um, paid? Probably not. But um, who knows? Right. Uh, and but probably not at this stage. Um, um, but I and then there are people like me who for who are a staff writer and this is their main main and probably yeah. only gig you know um but are you it's always a contract you're not on staff or how does uh it? i'm on contract um so you don't get health insurance or no i like i don't get health insurance no yeah. which is a you know for your british readers a, an <laughs> important thing, thing yeah, to yeah, yeah. know about yeah. yeah when you've been because you've been a staff writer for 20 mm. years now um, there isn't the same sense like there is in the UK of kind of pro career progression with titles and, you know, becoming <laughs> an editor and then the editor of this and working our way up in right. that same way. Staff writer squared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, staff writer is kind of the pinnacle yeah. of... I mean, you don't want 
move away from that. So is there a sense of where do you go from here and coming from the UK, thinking about promotions and... No, I, I mean, no, the staff writer job at The New Yorker is the best job there is in journalism, I believe. Um, and so that's Tom Wolf's point, isn't it, that the best jobs in journalism, you know, the active avoidance of trying to get promoted into an editorial position because it's most interesting. Yeah, you just oh, yeah, but I mean, I don't have this, I don't, I couldn't be an editor. I mean, that wouldn't be the, that wouldn't be a path for me. I mean, I, I, I don't, wouldn't, I'm not trained to do it. I do those people really know how to do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are people who do both, um, but I, you know, there's like my editor, Daniel Selevsky, who's um, a brilliant writer and a brilliant editor as well. Um, but I don't think there are many people who go from writing to becoming an editor. There are more editors who write a bit. Mm-hmm. Must be different. Some people must find certainly. it difficult, though, in terms of satisfying that kind of career step by step. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think. You know, my sense of it in Britain, and I, you know, I've, I've recently moved back here, but I've not lived here for 30 years. Well, except for that one miserable year at the, at the Times, um, Sunday Times. Um, but yes, there's a lot more, or there always seems to be a lot of churn in the newspaper world. You know, people have jobs for a little bit and then they move and then they do something else. And, um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure there's that happens a lot in the UK too, but it seems a particular th- phenomenon of British, the British media landscape, because there's so many newspapers, there's so many exactly. different. There are actually jobs for people to go and do, even if they're all in decline and everybody's worried about what's going to happen to the future of our trade. Is it a weird feeling then, having feel like you've made it as soon as you become self right at the New Yorker, that you kind of can't get better than this, and you know. Well, but I mean, that, you, did you feel like that? No, because it's not about title, is it? No. I mean, I, I mean, but I, it, just in terms of the scope of the work that you could do and how amazing. Well, the that is. scope of the work has changed. I mean, for one thing, is you know, I mean, I never think I can't get better, mm. at, and I always think, um, you know, I'm always anxious about well, what else can I do and I, you know, I don't want to just do the same thing over again and I don't mean what other job can I have but I mean how can I what can I do in this job that um, you know pushes me further or makes me do something I hadn't done or hadn't tried um, uh, but the New Yorker has changed you know what the magazine is is has changed so much in the years that I've been there I mean, the New Yorker is now so much more than a, a magazine. There's also there's all the online stuff. There's the radio show that we do once a week that I've done some stuff on. There's we have a there's a New Yorker festival that happens every year. So I'm I have been you know part of that for many years. Um, so it, what's required of me as a New Yorker writer um, has evolved and changed, mm. especially the online part has changed. And what is the, the process of determining the subjects you write about? How much is it assigned? How much is it ideas that you're bringing to your editors? And does that vary between the, the longer features and then the kind of faster twitch stuff for Talk of the Town or for the web? It's a bit... Uh, it's probably about half and half, I think. Um, uh, some of the writers at The New Yorker only write things that they themselves generate and, you know, that's, that they wouldn't... You wouldn't... The, the editors wouldn't offer that person, hey, hey, how would you like to go and write about blah. Um, I like having my editor suggest things to me because I 
one of my insecurities is not having enough ideas about what to write about. Sure. Um, and uh, and my editor is overflowing with brilliant ideas all the time. Um, so I like having that. How I mean, for one thing, it means you don't have to sell the idea if mm-hmm. they've already come up with it themselves. And what is your? Is there an expected number of pieces you're meant to do per year? No, no. I have a I have a word count, so okay. I. Um, I have to write a certain number of words and a certain number. I mean, it, you know, but it varies from person. You know, everybody's deal is different. That's fine. And then, particularly with the the process of going through drafts and the editing, and and what what's your kind of your workflow with that? Perhaps you talk about one of the pieces you sent, maybe the the dance piece or the. You um, know, how does it? What's the, the the life cycle of one of those? From well, sorry, the third the third piece was the the most yeah, yeah the the. The Eva Van Hover piece. Um, you want to know like, how how it go, how where it, how how it comes to, about. Lift, from lift, lift the bonnet. Like what's the you know from from the discussion that we're being assigned through the access negotiation through the yeah the that was stuff. one that was that was not my idea. Um, that was suggested to me, mm-hmm. and I think uh, you know there was the the access had been arranged through the producer of the ultimate Broadway show that um, the, or the, the Broadway show that ended up being the sort of end of the piece or not no it wasn't the end of the piece strike that it was a Broadway show that was happening mm-hmm. and that was the occasion for doing the piece yeah. um, uh, so I didn't have to do any of the you know the will you yeah I didn't have to do the wrangling which was nice um, and I, for that piece, I went over to Amsterdam, I think just one time to spend about four or five days with Ivo van Hover, talking to him and watching him do what he does. And then I met with him again once in New York, where he was casting and sort of did some scene stuff there with him and interviewed him again there. And then I met him again, final time, probably two months from the, the first meeting in London and talked to him again there and saw him doing more stuff there and then wrote it the month after that and it had to appear in October I think. And then how when you're working with with your editor how many drafts is it I mean is that do you try and file like a relatively polished first draft or? Yeah I do I'm I mean I I'm yes I mean which isn't to say that they don't sometimes change radically and on occasion I'll write a piece that I know is a mess and I'll hand it in um, with the hope that my brilliant editor will be able to see what the through line of it might yeah. be that I haven't been able to see. But that doesn't happen most of the time, thank goodness. Um, and uh, I write pretty pretty polished drafts, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we shouldn't say it doesn't undergo lots of editing. Yeah. It does, but um, it's not it's not wildly, wildly, wildly different. Was there a change? Was there kind of a shift after several years where you no longer, where that happened, where you became more and more polished? Or have you always been very good at kind of having a very clear first idea? I think I've probably got better at it. I, I mean, it's too, it's actually too long ago for me to be able to remember what <laughs> it was. How? No, I mean, when I was very, when I was Surely first the shock starting, of being awfully, uh, creep, you know. 
crucified by your first editor stays with you forever? No, I I remember when I started out at New York Magazine, so having to write my first profiles of people and just going away and reading like how is a New York Magazine profile put together? And it's five sections, and you have this at the beginning, you have a scene at the beginning, and then you have an explanation, and then you have another scene, and then you have a set of people saying yes but on the other hand blah 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 and then you have a sort of conclusion then you have a final concluding scene and that was sort of how you did a piece and I followed that template for um, uh, you know until I could step away from it a couple of years later I read um, I read The Power Broker last year yeah. right after I, I went to the Camino after I finished my book and I thought I was finally going to read it and then I was fascinated by the the kind of publication history of it, and this this standoff that he had with Bill Shaw. Do you know about this? So when it's this huge book on Robert Moses, so this guy who had enormous power in New York for a, for a long time, and he Caro was like a, a metro reporter for Newsday in the '60s. Wanted to write this book. It was meant to take a year. It took seven. He ran out of money. His wife sold his house, and then finally, they the New Yorker said we're going to accept it, and we're going to run more than we've ever run of any other book we've ever run for 25,000 word excerpts but the manuscript was 750,000 words and Caro and it so it went through this like brutal process of cuts but also there was Caro like went on strike because he said you're not changing he would write in like one sentence paragraphs and things like that all the stuff that was really out of kilter with New Mm -hmm. Yorker style and and this kind of standoff happened that went on for weeks and which was weird because Caro was totally broke he'd never published a word except in newspapers and, and everything like that and it's interesting because I read I read the whole book, which is amazing, but it is bloody long. <laughs> and and I, I'm interested now to maybe read those those four twenty five thousand word excerpts that were New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think, you know, actually quite possibly they're they're tighter. But it seemed that he kind of had had that style broken onto him in quite a Yeah. I mean if way. you do it for a long time you 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 know, you sort of I mean I've I ha- I've I'm sure I've I've got like my editor kind of in the back of my head. Um, you know, his his yeah. his his guidance over the years is is has Im- become embedded uh, in my own writing practice. So, um, but still, he still manages to you know remove a thousand words from a eight thousand word draft and make it a seven thousand word draft without me being able to see mostly where they come <laughs> from. So that's a that's quite a, a trick. That's a skill. Yeah. yeah. And when you're when you're pitching, do you ever still get nervous about your ideas, and oh God, are they yeah. ever rejected? Oh yeah, sure, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, both. I'm I'm nervous, and they're rejected. Yeah. Do you ever know in your gut when it's a perfect New Yorker pitch that you just know is going to get accepted? Well, I don't. I also don't really have to. I don't really pitch ideas yeah. in the same way. I mean, I don't have to pitch like I would pitch. If I were a freelancer, so no, it's no, much it's more. A conversation. It's much more yeah. of a conversation, or it's much more, um, you know, sort of between half a dozen emails rather than mm. I've got to craft a mm. paragraph that's going to sell you on this thing, and I know this is perfect. I know. I mean, I, I, you know, when something's a great New Yorker story, then I can tell it's a story. But it's not about, uh, you know, then I'll have in my yeah. in my mind that it's going to be a great story, but not that the pitch has got to be. And do you pitch. do you work out of the office? Do you work from home? No, or? I work from home yeah. and have done for years. Yeah. But with your when a piece is being edited and stuff, how would that interaction happen? Would you go in in person and go over it with them? Or? Yeah, uh, I would go in um, for the after the first ed- the first draft is in. I would you know my editor would have I would go in and meet with him and mm. uh, um, 
talk it through and um usually not at that stage it's not like a you need to move this here and do that here it's more the sort of general ideas of things that you know I need to bring draw more out or you know he wants this fact or this you know this anecdote that I told him at over lunch but you know I forgot to put in the piece or whatever um and then when it's uh, then the you know the more granular editing is done by email and you know he'll send me a copy and I'll read it and send notes back and um, and then there's a final closing meeting editing you know the last week in which something's editing I try to be around as much as possible and I was interested to ask on um, the Estee Lauder air piece that you yeah, Ronald well. Lauder, yeah I read that and then read the the talk of the town story that you did which is about the woman who'd written the kind of dating but the thing about the yeah one Kathy Freston stuff. yeah 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 and what I thought was was kind of interesting in that was to compare the kind of line that was taken about you know wealth or that sort of demi-monde of of people and it seemed that that the, the talk piece was quite satirical and was quite kind of um I thought it was very funny in in how it sort of set up this idea and it seemed I was interested with the date that the Lauder piece was wrong because it was what early 07 so it's sort of just 18 months before the yeah. financial crisis yeah. or, or things like that and it struck me I don't know if you agree this like a very kind of pre-crash story in some ways this was about sort of it seemed again I don't I, I don't know if you agree with it, but kind of quite accepting of the sort of validity of being a really rich guy who spends time oh I mean I I mean I you know it gets definitely pre-crash and it's definitely of that moment but um I mean I think that that piece is is satirical uh the 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 Lauder piece um at least it was that you know there are aspects of it that are intended to be um Yes, I, I mean, I, I, I think, it, I mean, I certainly wrote it with a satirical eye. Did you feel you were kind of hanging him on his own rope in, in some way? Well, yeah, that's what, yes, I suppose so. I mean, I, I, I just reread it because having sent it to you, I mean, I, I hadn't read it for a long time. Um, I mean, years and years and years. Yeah, that was one of those pieces where um, I think he was quite happy with it. Yeah. From what I remember, I think he was happy with it. He felt he had been represented accurately, and um, and that's always what I want mm. the person to feel that I've written about. But at the same time, I had people reading it saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe he said what he said." You know that he that they couldn't believe how obliviously rich and privileged right, he okay. was. And that, like I arrived in Vienna with twelve Egon Shields, and I left with twelve yeah, Shields yeah. and stuff. Well, I mean, you know, that piece was was um I mean that was an example of where, you know, I talked to half a dozen of his closest friends who included Benjamin Netanyahu yeah. and Colin Powell and uh, all these folks and with the, the private train. Right. Going, yeah. But you know, the greatest anecdote that any of them gave me was this friend of his who he went travelling with in Europe when they were teenagers and um oh, yeah, he the, and he to... didn't know how to peel an orange and this yeah. friend had to teach him how to peel an orange and that tells you everything. I mean, it's it's it, it actually sends shivers down my spine now. Yeah. Even think about it, because that's the sort of reporting fact that when you're on the phone with somebody, you think, okay, we've talked for half an hour, and I've got the thing I need. Um, and it's, it's so really interesting because I, I I totally hear hear that. But I, I read when I read them, maybe because I was really in a hurry, I sort of felt I could see that the kind of talk of piece was in this sort of tradition of like a, a sort of you know Tom Wolfe kind of. Like radical chic or something, you know that kind of skewering of the, mm. the absurdities in Milo. And I suppose I, I, I totally hear you that 
hear you with that. But I had wondered whether... What, did the magazine feel at that at that time in, say, 2007 that it, it was celebrating these people or that it was kind of lampooning them? Or is that, mm, is that a, even the wrong I way mean, to think no, about it? No, I mean, I wouldn't... I, I mean, I couldn't speak for the magazine. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I felt that I was... You know, on the one hand, I think Ronald Lauder has done this sort of rather marvellous civic thing of mm. having this museum, which is a great museum. Um, but I also think he's a sort of wonderfully oblivious rich person and that's why he was so much fun to write about in rereading the piece I was um, reminded of how how much fun it was to write because so there was these moments of kind of delicious obliviousness so perhaps perhaps they were too perhaps I was too you know, it wasn't. It, I wasn't pushing the satirical buttons hard hard enough, and mm. well, not it, hard it, enough it, for you. Um, but um, it was exactly the tone that I how was trying to achieve. Um, you've written in Return of the Native, obviously, about your immigrant experience, and you touched on obviously how it's different to um, less privileged immigrants. And you've spoke. You've written about um, facial feminization story and um, facial feminization and trans issues, which must have been a little daunting in terms of possibly the kind of how they would have been received, especially by trans communities and other immig- and immigrants. Are there any stories that you won't touch because you don't think it's your story to tell or that you're just, especially with social media at the moment, some journalists are just so scared to kind of get involved in some debates and write about certain topics? How how does that affect you? Um, I don't... I don't know. Uh, I mean, I I... You know, for example, with the story that I wrote about uh, facial feminization and the the trans, uh, you know, so so it's it's a piece about how uh, um, uh, trans women, some trans women, especially trans women of privilege, Mm. usually, are um, able to have this surgery to, you know, make make their faces look more feminine. And um, I was very conscious. I felt, I mean, it's it's not so much that I had a consciousness of a responsibility to a larger community and was I going to represent the trans experience accurately or anything quite as abstract as that. It was more like this person has trusted me with her story and she's trusted me so much she's allowed me into the room while she's having the surgery and she's told me about the most intimate aspects of her life and I have to honour her experience and try to represent it as compassionately and accurately as I can and that was a piece in which I chose very deliberately to write it in the kind of um, you know what a novelist would call the close third mm. person so I don't quote her I never use her I never use direct quotes and I don't have myself in the story as an, as an observer which is a very typical New Yorker trope of when I you know when I was in the room watching there was blood splattering and I you know I didn't have the eye I didn't use the first person at all in that piece. Um, and that was a conscious decision. It was a very of the conscious decision, craft-wise, because I wanted the reader to feel that they were inside the experience of the person. And and much of the piece is written in her words. It's using her language. It's using her things she said. You know, lines and phrases that she said to me. But it's used um, as it's written as if uh, you know they're not within quotes. Um, and that, I'm happy to say, um, the feedback that I got on that was um, 
very, very positive from uh, from trans people who communicated to me that they felt it was that uh, you know that that I had captured something that was true to their experience. Um, so you know, I didn't. I it, it, you. I don't. I don't think you can say. I mean, this question of are there stories that are not mine to tell? Mm. Sure, of course there are. But it's also not. And and. But I also haven't. You know, I can't just tell my story. You know, I mean, mm. the return of the native is my story. That's one of the you know the most personal, probably the most personal thing I've ever written Very about amazing. deciding. To, mm. Thank you, about deciding to leave America after all these years and move back to England, which I'd never planned to do. Um, that is my story, and I, you know, I can tell it. But, um, but if I thought I could, if I thought, if we thought as journalists that we could only tell our own stories and that we can't, we, you there'll know, be no journalism. there'd be no journalism. Have you sense, I've certainly sensed it that there is this greater sense of ownership over certain subjects and stories now more than ever, and this fear among journalists, certainly in the UK, of touching certain subjects, which can be dangerous, and especially in newsrooms that are mostly white and privileged, then who is going to write these stories because they're actually not employing the right people to tell them in the first place. Yeah, well, that's a structural problem, yeah. isn't it? So, so um, that I think, you know, magazines, the New Yorker included, are very conscious of and trying, you know, belatedly, but 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 with, you know, with with goodwill to do something about. Mm. We're, we're pushing up against our time limit, but can we talk in brief about your book? about the middle march book yeah and you know you first read and watch at 17 and then yeah. reread it every half decade or so five or so years what i was yeah. kind of interested, i read middle march when i was 17 as well um up a mountain in austria which i and i loved it i thought it was amazing but i you know i did an english degree as well and, and at oxford and had to read a lot of other victorian novels and i was wondering whether you feel it's in a kind of category of one over trollope over you know all the other writers of that period over the Brontes things like that it is for me Um, you know and I mean I'm not the only person who thinks it's the greatest I I can't even say it's the greatest novel in the English language because I haven't read all of them you know but uh, I mean wiser people than me and better read people than me have said so it it came along in my life at a moment when I was ready to receive it and stayed with me in a way that uh, nothing else I've read has Um, although you know, the the other things I studied when I was 17 and 18 also made a big impression, I think, that, you know... And I, I was going to ask, that does it fit... Is it Was it serialised or anything like that originally? Yeah. Because you know that Henry James, what is the loose baggy monsters comment that these big Victorian novels that were written yeah. for a penny a word, as three-deckers and things, were kind of loose and it had to, the novel had to be shrunken into, like, a single... Artifacts to become tight and near. Well, it was serialized, but I don't, you know. But she wasn't sort of making it up as she went along. She yeah. knew what she was doing, yeah. and um, uh, you know, she wasn't sort of crowd testing. Because uh, I remember being—I mean, it's story. a long time ago. Ended, I remember being pretty tight in a way that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I don't think I think it's you know unlike you know Dickens who sort of famously revised endings depending on how the, <laughs> the audience received them, which I which I also you know respect. Um, but uh, um, no, I think she knew what she was doing, and um, uh, she, I mean, there are, and there are stories of people coming up to George Eliot in the streets in London and saying, "Oh, you know, I do wish that you'd make things different for poor Mister Lydgate," and her sort of saying, saying, you know, nothing and smiling, and just yeah, yeah. you know, she has to 
you know, the 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 story is the the inexorable story and it can't be revised. And and what about the the kind of biblio? Ellie had this wonderful word with biblio memoir. Is it? Is the sort of term? Yeah, that was the, a term, the term that. Um, Joyce Carol Oates used when yeah. she was reviewing the book in the Times, yeah. Were there were there other kind of examples of that that had really moved you or decided that that was it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, very different ones, but um, I I loved uh, Jeff Dyer's book about D.H. Lawrence. Um, Didn't he just write a book about, um, like, a trashy war film from the 60s? He like, might have done. Yeah, I mean, he like, write a book about anything, yeah. yeah. Um, I... I can't keep up. I think it's, it's um, like a critical commentary on where eagles dare or something like that. Sounds plausible. Yeah. Good idea, even if he didn't. Uh, he should do that, if he, yeah. even if he didn't. Um, yeah, I love that. I loved uh, Olivia Lang's first book. Uh, I mean, I liked all her books, but I, you know, she'd only written uh, the one about Virginia Woolf at the okay. time that I was doing this book. So, and I thought that that was a beautiful example of how um, literature and life kind of are not separate things, but yeah. become the same thing in one's imagination. And having honed yourself to that magazine feature model so expertly how was it to kind of you know work in a much more open form and things like that it was a wonderful experience yeah. I mean I've written two books and and the first one was much harder and much more um it was about the American wedding industry and it was a lot uh a lot more journalistic and a lot more of a chore ultimately to do and it probably shows um but the Middlemarch book was a joy. It was, um, I wrote it very quickly and I had a wonderful time doing it. There was one Guardian comment piece um, that I read that was critical of a trend that she felt was emerging of people writing books about books. What, would you, what do you say to that? Do, do you find that is unfair? It wasn't particularly no, to you, I mean, but just generally. Uh, no, I think you can write a book about anything if it's a good book. Mm. I mean, it's about a war film from the nineteen sixties. Why not? You know, no, no, I don't. I mean, I don't think. I don't think you can. I mean, a, you know, a reviewer has to take a line. So, and I've taken lines myself, but um, I wouldn't necessarily. Uh, no. Would I you say it's a trend that has emerged? Yeah, I think there've been a lot of them. I mean, my book came out a while ago now, and I'm not. I don't. So I, I, and for for a while, I got sent everyone that that came out as a, you know, would I blurb it? Um, and some of them I even did. But yeah, so it's definitely a trend. I don't know if it's passed. I haven't been receiving quite so many of those. So either the trend is over, we're, or we're, we my blurb is less value. <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's all about autofiction. Okay, well, look, we're, we're a little bit over time anyway, but that was really fascinating. Thanks for Thank being you. such a gracious guest Thank and you, speaking so candidly. My pleasure. Thank you. So it's us again to talk about how that interview with Rebecca went. Simon, thoughts? Uh, I think it was very good. We were a bit nervous beforehand that we were doing it last thing on a Friday and everyone might be quite subdued. But I actually thought the, the energy levels were quite high and I found it really fascinating, um, yeah, just to kind of lift the curtain and see a little bit more about what goes on behind New Yorker Towers in terms of the making of, of those pieces and also something that, that you alluded to of like what does it feel like to be at the top of the tree you know yeah. to, have, to have got there we tried to uh, quiz her on the the darker side of the New Yorker when the recorder was off and she there was literally nothing bad to say about it yeah she was extremely diplomatic extremely um, anyway uh, what have you been up to Ellie? Um, I have trying to think about what I can say in terms of when this comes out comes out next Tuesday next Tuesday 
Right, no, well, I went to Paris to interview someone very exciting yesterday, which I can't say because it isn't out yet and we don't want the Sunday Times stealing our ideas. Um, but what else has been going on? Um, I, Yeah, I've just been writing a lot. I interviewed the detective Colin Sutton behind uh, Manhunt. Have you been watching that on ITV? I have not, but I'm familiar he, with it. He caught um, Levi Belfield, the hideous serial killer who killed um, Minnie Dowler. Okay. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, for myself, I've been doing uh, last bits on the book, so the, the kind of final bits and bobs before it comes out, um, and a bit of a spring clean elsewhere, my taxes and stuff like that, <laughs> and uh, picking up uh, my magazine work. So busy all round. So uh, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Zara Hankier handles our social media. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and James Edgar does our graphic design. If you'd like to find us on social media, we are at Always Take Notes on Facebook and Instagram, and Take Notes Always on Twitter. And we'd love it if you could uh, leave a review on iTunes. Uh, or to chip into our crowdfunding account at Patreon, which you'll also find under Always Take Notes. Many thanks. Bye.